0: Welcome to the 7 Things EMS Podcast, a continuing education offering of Limmer Education. 7 Things EMS Podcast is designed to give you what you need to succeed in EMS. It's conversational, informational, and without the fluff. And welcome to another episode of Seven Things EMS. I'm your host, Dan Limmer. We have a great episode for you today Seven Things from the Medical Director's Perspective. And I am thrilled to be able to introduce a uh, physician and good friend, uh, Will Cross. Will is Assistant Medical Director for Emergency Medicine at the University of Louisville Health System. I've known Will for many, many years from his EMS days to flight medic days through med school and now as an emergency physician. I think generally EMS systems are always better off with involved physicians. I think physicians that have a past EMS perspective are even better. So using our format here, we have a quick introduction. I'm going to say hello to Will and we're going to get in to our seven things, which I believe you're going to enjoy. Welcome Will Cross MD. Thanks, Dan. This
1: is awesome to actually be a part of this conversation. And as you said, we've known uh, each other a really long time.
0: <laughs> a very long time. And we certainly could tell some stories, but that's not our, our goal here today. We're going to get um, right to it. And I just love saying MD uh, after your name. Maybe that's, seems like now that's more of a thrill for me today than, than, than you, but uh, I just think it's awesome. So seven things from the medical director. What I like about the seven things you created, uh, and everybody that's a guest here does their own seven things. And what I like about them is you've done some clinical things, you've done some understanding the doc things, uh, and then even some more clinical things. I think it's a great uh, way to put these together. So let's start with number one. And uh, it's a great start. Always strive to take great care of people. Don't be afraid to defend the decisions you make on the patient's behalf. Tell me about that one.
1: So I think sometimes in the specifically ED environment, it can be intimidating when you're the provider bringing a patient in and you're giving a report. And sometimes I think you can fall back on, well, just did I do the right thing? And somebody asks you a question and it's, oh man, did did I really do this right? And and there's almost a sense that you have to, you have to defend yourself. Um, And what I would tell you is that that is so far from what you should be thinking and, and from where you should be. I think all of us, whether you're a EM, EMR, a first responder, EMT, paramedic, nurse, physician, we got into this business because we like to take care of people. You know, it's hokey, it's cliche, but the reality of it is it's a lot of what we do. And I think sometimes we make decisions on the fly. Actually, we always make decisions on the fly and when you're making decisions kind of as you go, a big part of that is being able to say, I did what was in the best interest of the patient, period. And so it may be that you, you know, are approaching a family or approaching a family member, approaching the patient in a certain way. And if it's a way that you can very easily say, I did this because it was one, clinically well or clinically better for the patient, and two... If it's something that you can say in good conscience that made a difference for the positive, I don't think you have a whole lot to defend. But I think the bottom line is we have to maintain that sort of position of excellence in everything that we do.
0: And if we are always working towards providing great care, I think we're going to provide great care. You know, one of the things you've heard me say when we've spoken at conferences together is that EMS, uh, every call is ultimately a series of decisions. That makes Absolutely. a call succeed or not succeed. Well, let's go into the medical director perspective. I think there's a lot of people that think that they are uh, judged by the medical director. The medical director is going to be the person that you get in trouble with or have to, to worry about. What's your take if a, if, a, if an EMT or an AEMT or paramedic comes to you and says, you know, the protocols say this, I was really concerned. Maybe I, I didn't have time to call in or I really thought this was the right thing to do. Um, what's your perspective on that?
1: Uh, I think that's a great question, Dan. And I think it's one of the probably everyday questions that you, that I hear. Um, And it's not even always the big things. Sometimes it is the big things. Uh, But I always default back to, let's talk about your mindset or your, your thought process. You know, why is it that you did what you did? Um, And I, I think the concept of medical protocols is really important because, they are guidelines. They were designed to be guidelines, but they should not replace your ability to critically think. You know, you've said this a million times wow. over in the lectures as we've talked before, Dan, that, you know, we are not in the business of just rote memorization and, and really um, doing things because the book says so, right? It's it's better And more important that we understand why we do the things. And so if an EMT comes to me and says, hey, you know, or example, I'll give you one that that happened. A paramedic comes in and says, look, doc, we had this patient. They were going crazy on us. I couldn't get to the radio in time to call for an RSI order. But this patient was agitated delirium. I needed to put him down. He was an asthmatic who was having trouble breathing. I couldn't get there. You know, I did what I thought was right for the patient. I look at that and I say, hey, good for you. Because the reality is, if this provider didn't do that, this patient would probably be dead, right? If you wait until they're so hypoxic and you're watching them deteriorate, or hypercarbic, and you're watching them deteriorate but do nothing, the outcome's gonna be bad. I would much rather you do something than to do nothing, especially in a clinical environment like that. I mean, that's an extreme,
0: right? Right. And we can put in the your mileage may vary statement, you know, always follow your local protocols and you know, blah, blah, blah. We're not telling you to go out and do risky things. But the truth is, the nature of EMS is that you're going to get things that are going to go between the lines. And how we respond um, is really important. Uh, in that. Absolutely. Cool. So let's go on to number two. Addicts sure. and frequent flyers get sick and will die one day. I love that. My medical director talked to my uh, paramedic students at uh, down here in Galveston, and he said, "I treat all patients like they're secretly trying to die and not telling me." You know? and I was <laughs> like, "Oh, well, that was I kind of like that." You know what I mean? But the fact is, all your frequent flyers, even people that are on the street, that are drug users and everything else, people that are alcoholics, people that are people that are in tough lives, um, have more medical problems than most. So let's. I don't want to take all your thing there. I, I just love these no. so much. So tell me, tell me.
1: You're absolutely right, Dan. I think there are a couple of key points to this. Let's talk freaking flyers first, right? You go to get Mrs. Jones at three o'clock in the morning and she's out there with her suitcase waiting for you to take her to the hospital. It's very easily easy to look at Mrs. Jones and say, oh, this crazy lady wants me to take her to the hospital again. And you know clearly she's not sick because she brought all her stuff with her. Well, the problem with that mindset is that it gets you gives you tunnel vision and you miss subtle findings in your physical exam. You bring her in and and unfortunately the ER has the same tendency. Oh, Mrs. Jones, yep, she's back again, right? So it may be hours before she gets appropriately evaluated and she could be actively dying from the moment you pick her up. And so I think it's easy for us to blow things off, blow people off that we see on a regular basis saying Mrs. Jones coming back in, oh, she's got her chest pain again. But what happens if this time is the time, right? This is the time that she's having her MI and you have the ability to identify it and don't catch it, right? Or she's having this chest pain, she's developing her MI, and by the time you get to the hospital, she goes into cardiac arrest. If you didn't do an EKG, if you didn't do your evaluation, you didn't work her up, you wouldn't know that. And I wouldn't know it when you drop her off to me. I'd say, oh, it's certain cardiac death. Could be an MI. Could be many other things right? So it's it really important to recognize that frequent flyers have disease. And unfortunately, many of our frequent flyers truly have real pathology. They have diseases that will kill them one day. And it's much easier to just blow it off than it is to try and put the effort in to really do a good comprehensive workup. Now I'll share with you another little piece here. Um, this is a personal piece. So as far as addicts go, uh, I will tell you, that it's really easy. And I'll give you an example. The other day, I took care of a guy that came in three times in one shift. Now, I was working a nine-hour shift. He used an opiate. He got Narcan by EMS. He went back out. He did it again. Three times in a row, EMS brought him in within my nine-hour shift after he left against medical advice and used again. Now, it's very easy to get frustrated at somebody like that and say, man, what are you doing? Trying to kill yourself? You know, I, I, I debated actually admitting this guy for a 72 hour hold with psychiatric thoughts that maybe he was trying to kill himself. Of course he wasn't. He just really needed his high and was ticked that we were taking it away from him. But here's the personal piece. So Dan knows this. People that know me well know that I have a brother who's been a heroin and polypharmacy user uh, for his entire adult life. So he is 46. And from the time he was 17, until 46 now he's been using heroin, cocaine, uh, meth, pretty much anything you stick in front of him. And I would just ask you if you had a brother that was doing that, how would you want them to be seen? How would you want them to be treated? And I look at it kind of differently because of personal experience. but what I typically tell people to do is kind of look at that person's mom and then ask you ask yourself if you can just see them as the quote unquote trash off the streets. Because that's how people frequently see drug addicts. You know, my brother would be what you would consider to be trash off the streets, but he's still my mom's little boy and he always will be at 46. And so it's, it's difficult for us to deal with difficult people, but sometimes those are the exact people we need to spend extra time dealing with. Because it may just be that you're the one person that they connect with that saves their life, life at that time and, and may change something around for
0: them. You never know, but I, I think you got to remember that we see people, we take care of people. It's it's hard when you see a lot of it. It doesn't matter really now if you're urban or suburban or rural. It's everywhere, and you see a lot of it. And and I think we can both admit practically that it's sometimes an uphill slog to see the you know several of these a day, and you do it, uh, but you can never let your guard down as a clinician or a human. And I think that's really what separates some of our amazing providers uh, from others is that they're able to do that. And exactly uh, there certainly, right. certainly is talk with everything going on now about uh, compassion fatigue and general fatigue in, in medicine and nursing and EMS. That certainly doesn't help. But I think that uh, I very much appreciate your personal perspective, and I hope people really take that uh, to heart. Number three I talks to... about destination. Yeah, yeah, number three talks about destination. And that matters. The patient's better served from an additional 10-minute trip than they are being brought to the closest hospital. And now you uh, have gone from uh, paramedic, flight medic, now physician. And I think that there's a lot of um, EMS people that don't necessarily think of themselves as, as big a part of the healthcare system as they are and see what a decision they make when they go to a place that can comprehensively treat a, treat a stroke, or have a CAT scanner, or have some type of cardiology available, and what a difference um, that decision can make. I think that we feel like we're on the outside of the hospital, but I think there's times that all of the things you do on the scene, going to the right place might be the biggest thing we do. You're 100% right. You
1: know, one of the things, I and I have, I have the luxury of working at seven different emergency departments, right? Luxury, discomfort, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, (laughs) I was that's my life. (laughs) I know you were. I I can tell. I I just know you. Um, At any rate, I get to work at seven different places, and they're all very unique. Academic trauma center, uh, community hospitals, freestanding emergency departments. And so I get to see those patients who, for example, get appropriately taken to a trauma center, and I see how they're managed from a trauma perspective. I also see when those patients are brought into our community hospital or our freestanding ER, if they're a trauma patient and they're brought into one of these facilities, all we are simply doing is delaying care in many cases. Now, I I would argue that a majority of these patients that get brought into us are probably okay and don't need definitive surgical intervention. But for those few cases where they are really sick, you know, I I know the American College of Surgeons has kind of gone away from a lot of the mechanism stuff. Dan, you and I have been doing this long enough to know that mechanism matters. It does make a difference. They're they're putting less stock in trauma-centered destinations for uh, mechanism. But I would tell you that again, you're the ones that are seeing things in the streets, and what you see makes a difference. So that's trauma. But let's talk, you know, uh, cardiology. So you have somebody who. You have a great story for, and I'll give you a good example that happened to me today. I worked in the ER today. I had an old lady, 87 years old, came in crushing substernal chest pain, radiated to her left arm, diaphoretic, nauseous. You know where I'm headed with this, right? But EKG looks okay. I don't see any EKG changes. I still feel clinically like this woman's having an MI. So what do I do? I call the cardiologist. He goes, ah, yeah, well, maybe, maybe not. I'm not waiting for the blood le- blood levels to come back, her troponin to come back. I'm like, "Listen, I just want you to come down and take a look at this lady." He comes down, he looks at her, he goes, "Oh, I'm taking her to the lab right now." I said, "Huh? Ah, what do you know?" So, the beautiful part about that is we had a cath lab where I was. But what if you were at, you know, a, the middle point between me and one of the other institutions and maybe you were a couple minutes closer to a freestanding ER who had no other facility and no other resource. You take this woman there, She's gonna end up there. You're gonna, I'm gonna do my workup, but I'm gonna be kind of thinking, why did they bring this woman here? Because she's clearly having an MI, even though her EKG doesn't show it. Now, by the way, I'll tell you that lady had a uh, 99% LAD proximal LED occlusion, which means her wow. widowmaker about made. Well, she's not a widow; she'd be a widower, right? Something. Anyways, almost you would have pulled out the bugle for sure. Yes, absolutely. Great answer, Dan. So, anyways. Knowing what resources are available to you and how you can get somebody from point A to point B is important and knowing what they're capable of doing. How about that 30-year-old teacher who now has left-sided deficits? They can't move their left arm. They can't move their left leg. You know, it's a full-blown stroke. And I had the decision now that I can take them somewhere where they can actually go in and physically pull that clot out, or I take them to another facility where they may not have those resources. Do I want to take that 30-year-old who relies heavily on her arms and hands and everything else to maybe get better with TPA versus I can definitively say, I take her to get a thrombectomy and they pull that clot out. I can watch her improve immediately. It's all about destination. And the only person that dictates that really is going to be you. I mean, your protocols will tell you certain things, but at the end,
0: it's up to you as to where patients go. I think another word that really comes to mind from what you're saying, you've done it as a physician, but I think there's ways that uh, the EMS people on the trucks can also do it, is the word is advocacy. You're really yes. an advocate for this. You're making decisions in the best interest of somebody. Again, if you say this is your mother or grandmother or brother, you know what would you want? The concept of the advocate, especially in a healthcare system that can kind of just charge along on its own sometimes, Having an advocate is really important. Great.
1: Great word. I agree.
0: Well, going into number four, I think this could probably play in. Not e, not all ER docs are created equally, um, so don't take negative feedback personally. Some docs are going to get it, and they will educate you and not scold you. I think everybody has a story. You probably have them as a paramedic where you've come into the hospital, and the doc has been you know, somewhere between unkind and irate, Um, uh, I think we've all have been there at some point. And and quite frankly, we take that relationship very seriously. We look for uh, approval. We look for the, our good job comes from Mm -hmm. how our handoff goes and there sometimes are, are off, but, you know, I do think you have a perspective from a doc that you're going to add to this. Absolutely. You know, I, I think it's one of my biggest frustrations when I watch
1: An EMS provider get belittled, and this is back when I was a EMS provider full time, and now as a doc, you know. and, And I think what I recognize is that the doctors who belittle and do not really get it don't have never gotten it, have never understood EMS, have never understood the environment that we work in in EMS, and so they think that what they do in an emergency department is exactly what the environment in the back of an ambulance is like because they just don't know any better and they will have a tendency I think to hold you accountable now remember so much of what we do in EMS is at a high level we are saving lives on a daily basis and so so much of what we do looks like what we do in the ER right there's this level of accountability well if I can do it here and they have the capabilities of doing it out in the field why are they not doing it and I think It goes back to, again, not really understanding what it takes to get a patient from the seventh story behind the toilet and then have to take them down in a stair chair to finally get them there, get them into the hospital and have been the only provider in the back of the truck taking care of this person. And you show up in the, the ER where you've got five nurses and a doctor and respiratory therapy and everybody else. Right, So, I would tell you that when they come at you like that, take a step back and recognize it's not you, it's their ignorance that's causing them to to react to the way that they do. But any encounter should be a learning experience for all parties involved. I would hope that, and I will tell you that if any of my docs ever did that, we would be having words because I don't find that to be acceptable at all. I'd be naive in thinking that this is not going to continue to happen. But what I would say is if one of the docs comes at you and says, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? If you don't understand, ask them. So, you know, doc, I didn't do it because I I honestly didn't think about it. Tell me why you're thinking that way. They may still not like your response, but take that negative and make it into a positive. Use it to help yourself grow. It's a tough thing to do. And as a doctor who works with lots of doctors, I can tell you there's no bigger egos in the world than doctors. So recognize that they are going to eat that up if it's one of those things where they feel like they're right and you're wrong, and and that's a horrible scenario, but that's sometimes how it is. So the bottom line in it is, I would hope that they spend their time educating you, but recognize that they will and continue to. I hope at some point we can educate them enough to stop. But at some, but they will continue to have, as Dan said, maybe that irate comment, um, less than nice comment. Just don't take it personal because you you didn't do anything to them personally. You didn't do anything maliciously. You did nothing that warrants
0: the kind of feedback you may sometimes get. And there's times that uh, one or both parties in a conversation are having just a bad day, whether it be the, the doc or the medic or both, uh, and he or she in both situations. I don't care if it's a husband and wife or coworkers, bad days are make things prone to arguments. And there's always another day, and you'll come back in there again, and that other day is good, and that rolls into number five. It so does. Show me you want to learn. It, it this this is mo- not coincidence. Show me you want to learn. I will go out of my way to teach you. I'd love to hear uh, if you have an example of that. I do. All right, let's do it then. So here's the thing. Um,
1: I love when EMS people come in excited. I love when they come in after a chaotic scene uh, and things just didn't go super well. They couldn't get an airway. I, I love those experiences. And I love them because I don't let them walk out of that ER bay until they've gotten that airway, right? So the EMS folks around us know that when I'm working, if they bring something into me and it needs something done, they're not leaving the ER without doing that procedure. I I have our EMS folks work the arrest. So when when they bring an arrest in, for example, I have them run a code in our ER bay. It is the coolest thing. They absolutely love it. The nursing staff loves it. And what it does is it shows the nursing staff, especially now with all these new nurses, man, post-COVID, we we have so many new grad nurses that we're using our EMS provider so much more to be able to help educate them. But at any rate, let's say it's a bad tube. I pull them in. I get the GlideScope out, which has the big camera. I say, hey, let's go. Let's walk through this, right? Real-time education. It is the single best thing to do. And they eat it up the staff loves it, and everybody gets to learn from that experience. And so if if I see that these EMS providers really want to get engaged, man, I, I will pull them in and I will have them do anything and everything they can. It's the coolest experience.
0: What an opportunity uh, to give someone to be able to rise to an occasion, especially in a setting like that. You could add a little bit saying that you have a lot of new nurses and it's just a little spot that you, that you cut out. But and I don't think there's really any better way to make somebody part of a team and to continue a training and a relationship. Um, I'd also probably say, um, plug for the uh, University of Louisville Health Systems, um, that after hearing this, there's going to be a lot of people going to want to be paramedics there <laughs> if, they know, if they know that you're going to be out there. So, um, so, that's, uh, so that's an awesome thing.
1: Well, you know, um, the other thing, let me just throw this in, Dan.
0: Yeah. What I
1: love about the missed airway or the code that didn't go so well, the things that are what we would consider be to be the imperfections and the things that intuitively we would say we failed at is that they get to recover right then and get to say, okay, now I see maybe how this could have gone better. And it's not punitive. It's completely educational. And they literally walk out of that room successful. They don't walk out thinking I missed the tube or I, failed this resuscitation, or I didn't do X correctly, they walk out, I think, with a completely different appreciation for what they've done that
0: day. And that's what I love yeah. about it. No, and it's, uh, they will, I'm sure, have similar feelings that they can have some resolution, have some understanding, have the ability to uh, to learn, um, and to, to really feel part of the system. And I, I just think that's, uh, I think that's outstanding. Like I said, that's, University of Louisville Health Systems, Dr. Will Cross. (laughs) We hire our robotics
1: in the ER, too,
0: and they get uh, to work full scope of practice in our ER. Call collect, call direct, operators are standing by.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And at the end, I will give you Dan Limmer's cell phone number so you can call that direct.
0: (laughs) Number six, vital signs are vital. Abnormal vital signs mean something. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve this up to you again. I'm going to throw my quick thought in here is that I think that not only is abnormal abnormal, but we're so stuck on the concept of normal. You know, if we say respirations are 12 to 20, there's times 18 in a resting person is bad, right? There's times that that 60 to 100 or whatever we do for the pulse, right? Uh, that there's times that even normal can be abnormal in the context that you see them. So, Great statement. So, Tell me some of that doc stuff. <laughs>
1: well, Dan, <laughs> I mean, most people don't know this or those that have known us a long time know that you were one of my earliest mentors. And so uh, a lot of what I learned in this business comes from you. So you're telling me to teach you doc stuff. Well, the stuff you've taught me for all these years is stuff that I apply to medicine. So
0: Do I have to pay for these kind words or is this just on the house?
1: Uh, or is should I, I, should I, I submit later. it to my insurance? <laughs> So anyways, honestly, here's the deal. You, you teed up something perfect for me, and that is so much. We see people day in and day out. We see them as we're walking down the street. We see them in our jobs. Seeing normal is never really difficult. You see it all the time. It's those subtle differences that you look at and say, something just isn't right. right? You use the, the analogy of somebody who's breathing 18 times a minute and while again you you defaulted to that could be normal and that is normal in many cases if that person doesn't look good breathing at 18 times a minute they look like they're working to breathe 18 times a minute that's relevant and that's important now the the big piece of this and the reason that this really was kind of point number 6 for me is because i see all the time where EMS will document for example that somebody had a hypotensive blood pressure in the field, but never mention it because their pressure is fine when they arrive at the hospital. If I have an episode of hypotension, the true episode of hypotension, that from somebody who's got risk for bleeding, doesn't have to be trauma. It could be GI bleed. It could be vaginal bleeding. It could be anything. But you come in and tell me that they've had a single episode of hypotension. You gave them some fluids and they got better. That tells me a lot more than Somebody coming in and their blood pressure is 110 over 70 and their heart rate is 100, right? That initial finding says to me, increase your index of suspicion. If you're considering doing, for example, a CT scan, don't wait, do it because you want to know if there's some bleeding somewhere, right? So those subtleties are important. The identifying the abnormal thing is super important as well. You know, I remember as a paramedic when I was working in the ER, the docs would be crazy about if the person's heart rate was over 100, you never discharge them. And I just think, man, that's really stupid. I see people with heart rates of 110, 120 all the time as a paramedic. What's the deal? Well, the deal is that a heart rate over 100 is never normal. And just for context, not that you care about this, but just to give you some perspective around this. One of the single biggest ways doctors are sued are discharging people with abnormal vital signs. If you get a heart rate of 110 and I discharge you and you go home and you die from eating too many chicken wings, I probably meant fault because I let you go with a heart rate of 110. Sounds crazy um, and it kind of is, but it's also critically important. That patient who has tachycardia, who's hypotensive, that maybe is septic, or maybe they're tachycardic and their temperature's up. Um, that's really important because you give them a little bit of IV fluid. They took a Tylenol before they left. And by the time they show up, it's brought their heart rate down enough. It's brought their temperature down. And so now they look like they're totally normal to me. But at the time that you saw them, they were hyperthermic. They had a temperature, they were tachycardic, and plus or minus hypotension, right? All really important things. And I think COVID has probably taught us now that we take blood or we take temperatures on people. I can tell you, and I'm sure Dan, you'd say maybe, well, you're super medic, so forget it. But the rest of us, (laughs) you know, back in the day, we didn't take temperatures on people. It was just like, like temperature, who cares about what their temp is, right? We didn't even carry thermometers on the, on the trucks.
0: Well, I'll go one more. I'll go one more. We thought the nurses were crazy for taking a temperature first instead of doing other things when we came into the hospital. (laughs) Until we realized the value of it. Uh You know, we didn't realize what the what the big picture was. We only wanted the cool stuff. You know, that's right. Yeah, and now you know you look
1: at pulse ox has taken on a whole new meaning after COVID too. You know, the happy hypoxic, the person who's looks great talking to you. They don't look like they're in respiratory distress, but their SATs are 80%. All, a lot of that stuff has changed over the, over the years. And so I, I think recognizing abnormalities is really critical. And it's super important for me to hear in the ER, when you drop a patient off, you tell me anything that doesn't sit right with you. I promise you it will be relevant. You know, if you still work in one of those places where they don't listen to you, shame on them. That's really unfortunate. But I can promise you that if you go to a place where you have somebody who gets it, um, we're going to listen to what you have to say, and we're going to try and apply any information you give us to, to help us make our decisions.
0: You know, I think you've mentioned some you know, physician, hospital-based things. I think EMS tends to, you know, to poo-poo things, but uh, against that, well, that's a hospital. But I was looking at uh, one of the, uh, I think it was a syncope score. Uh, it was a Canadian or uh-huh. one of the syncope scores, and then there's some of those things that are hospital based. But I always say to myself, if this is valid enough for a doc to look at and come up with, that we should look at those things. You know, you talk about discharging patients. You know, for you, discharging patients is the liability, whether to admit them or not. Sometimes it's your biggest decision, and but yet we feel that we can just refuse patients all the time. You know, without oh, looking at all these things, right? So, I don't know, I just really think that, that we can learn a lot um, from some of the physician tools and measures and the different scoring systems, the pulmonary embolus scores, the syncope scores, these different things. Not that we're even going to complete the whole scoring thing, but if we look at something important enough to be in those scores, there are things that we should be looking at in the field and that we should be able to learn from that. Hey, Dan, I think we just came up with our next seven things. Oh, seven all scores! Right, can, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this because because we're doing good on time, which is unusual for us because we can talk you know pretty well. Tell me about how you look at things, boy. Uh, I know in medicine it's big, but in EMS, Cushing's triad and Beck's triad and all these things. Um, there was a paper out somewhere I saw that the number of people with tamponade that actually exhibit all of Beck's triad isn't all we thought it was. Any thoughts you want to throw out about uh, how much we hang our hat on, on what things I know I'm putting you on the spot a little, but I'm just thinking no, this really goes okay. with the vital science thing.
1: It really does. Um, you know, Beck's triad is, is absolutely one of those things that, you know, part of my struggle is that I feel like at one point when these things were discovered, it was like, Oh, this is really a neat coincidence. Um, but much of, what we discover by way of these triads and dyads and, you know, the different um, presentations doesn't always fit everybody, number one. Number two, you know, you think of Cushing's and the Cushing's triad, and you're talking about hypertension and um, bradycardia, and you're talking about increased intracranial pressures. You know, with, with that dynamic, physiologically, they make sense. Right. If I can if I can look at something and I can say, well, because the pressure goes up inside the the cranial vault, the body's trying to regulate, and so it slows the heart rate down to decrease cardiac output to be able to do that. And so bradycardia makes sense. um, because our cardiac output decreases, we'll increase our respirations. Those things all they make sense because you can rationalize them from a physiologic perspective. When you talk about mechanisms, uh, you know, and, and you think of Beck's triad. They also can exist, but you hit it right on the head by saying it's not all you can't always put your money on meeting the all three equations. You know, the one I think of off the top of my head is tension pneumothorax. How many people have actually seen a deviated trachea? Right? It's something that we're taught. It's something that I think intuitively makes sense until you realize that. Up in the neck, it there's a lot of muscle and a lot of structures there that won't allow that trachea to really deviate. So where we see tracheal deviation is in the cadaver, because they're dead, or it's in somebody who is a cadaver, and we can open their chest and see that they've deviated intrathoracically, not outside. So I I think there are a lot of things that we learn. I won't say that are hocus pocus, because they're not. They're they're legit, but they're not truly applicable to what we do. Um I do, but you know, take that flip side, and we just talked about Cushing's, right? And the Cushing's triad, you look at that and go, "Oh wow, I got this person who's got this horrible head injury, and now all of a sudden they're tachycardic and getting bradycardic, or I'm sorry, they're they're um, hypertensive and getting bradycardic." Ooh, that tells me that something. Means that so. says, yeah, yeah. So I think you have to take each of those a little bit and say, "Do I understand why they present the way they do?" You know, if if you can understand why those things exist then you can actually use them as applicable tools. If you don't really understand it, then you're just looking for these elements, like you're checking a box, and then it,
0: it becomes ineffective in my mind. I think that's a, that's a that's a great way to say it. We have a mutual friend who talks a lot about pathophysiology, <laughs> Joe Mistovich, a prince among men. And uh, the Mistevich stories here could be in a whole other seven things, uh, but that's always been his thing in that if you understand it, Um, It's a lot different than seeing signs and symptoms. So we're winding down number seven. And, you know, this. we talked before we started today about how things change so much. Here, number seven is protect yourself. An N95 can be sexy, being real, and vulnerable is not weak. Making it home sane and whole is not overrated. Whether we're talking about uh, the current COVID situation, which... We're divided on pretty politically and opinion-wise mm-hmm. and so many things, um, yet we are clinicians, and we do have a responsibility to be there to ourselves and our families. And quite frankly, COVID isn't the last thing that's going to happen in our times Amen. in US and medicine. Mm-hmm. So how do we learn from this? How, what would you say to people to say, all right, listen, we're, we may or may not be in a home stretch but if if we are something else is going to come along. Think well of the things that have come along in our lifetimes, from from avian flus to everybody worrying about you know Ebola and all these different mm-hmm. things. There's always going to be stuff going on. Uh, protection should be smart. People should be smart uh, in the application, even when it's not easy or it's getting old. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. You know, this one you could say was prompted by COVID, and I think it is in a lot of ways, but it's not because COVID was the end-all be-all like you just said. I think what COVID did is it gave us an awareness of so many things. One, I think in the way that we approached infectious disease and the way we approached sort of that unknown patient population, we were exposing ourselves every day and never knew it, right? When COVID came along and we all of a sudden had this lethal disease that we were watching our coworkers die from and our our family members die from, all of a sudden it was like, okay, I can now, I, I now have to be protecting myself. But I think the other thing that came from it, that's really pretty powerful is that, you know, some of us have been around long enough to see the ebbs and flows of taking care of yourself. Dan, you're, I always, Fall back on your talks about suicide and, and what that does to people um, or what leads them to that place. And a big part of that is, is not having the support system, not being willing to allow yourself to be vulnerable and say, hey, I'm hurting. I need help. Um, I'm in a bad place. I'm burned out. You know, and, and in the end, if you don't take care of yourself from a, we just talked about an N95, right? Meaning you, you got to use personal protective stuff, but even bigger and something that COVID I think really showed us, there are so many people that went and did these travel contracts and were working in New York city and working on the, you know, in the, the throes of the most heavily hit areas day in and day out, not taking care of themselves emotionally, not taking care of themselves physically. And I think, number one, we saw a lot of burnout. But two, we saw physicians, we saw EMS providers, we saw nurses, we saw healthcare workers killing themselves at an alarming rate during this pandemic. You know, we see little bits and pieces of information on it as the stories make it to to mainstream media. I haven't seen anything that kind of aggregates this, but, you know, I... Have some friends over in Italy, and if you recall, they were getting crushed. Um, Nurses over there, and three nurses in one hospital killed themselves because they did not want to go back into the hospital. They were so overwhelmed. Three nurses in one hospital killed themselves because this overwhelmed them so much. And you can't help but ask yourself what if somebody asked them how they were doing, and somebody pulled them off the line and said, We're going to help you, right? I'm not blaming this on anyone at all. I think, as we've already said, this is unprecedented, nothing we could have foreseen. Um, You've hit it right on the head by saying, again, this isn't the last we're going to see of chaos and craziness. Uh, Nonetheless, it's been a great learning experience for all of us. Protect ourselves physically, but man, we got to protect ourselves and each other emotionally.
0: You know, I think that um, there's a certain group of people come into EMS and believe that emotional damage is inevitable. And I think that there are certain things uh, in any person, different things from person to person, that can push us over the edge. But I do think it's important to say that with the, we, we hopefully have learned from this. And there Absolutely. are times, there are desperate times, and, and, and we're pushed beyond what we, uh, what we believe that we can do. But I also don't want people to come into EMS and think that emotional damage is inevitable. There are people who've been in this a long time and still love what they do and have it happen. And I think that taking care of oneself, I think that taking care of each other, and I think that systems working together to do this, as you say, can certainly help prevent a lot of this. I don't want people to go away and say, oh, why would I go into this because of... All the people, you know, killings as well. Those are, those are warnings to us to take care of ourselves, take care of our friends, and to and to take care of our system. To do what we need to do. I would actually advocate leaning into EMS a little bit, being a part of it, being part of the solution, um, and and being okay, but also know that there's times it's okay to not be okay. Just like it is, people people see a, a horrible call or a scene. And when you're new, you feel badly because you don't feel bad, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this, stuff is right. Not predi- this stuff is not predictable. If you had a horrible call and you say, cool, when it's your first one, you stop and say, is that bad, right? <laughs> but then there's something that's relatively small. Somebody's got the same name as your brother or sister, somebody that looks like your uncle, and it hits you harder, and it seems like a mild call. You know, we have to be aware of these things. We have to stick together. We have to do them. Emotional... Uh, damage is not inevitable. It's certainly possible, and it's been a lot in this. But there's ways to take care of yourself and do things. And I want to, I want to keep people in the game uh, and do this despite that. Absolutely, totally agree with you, Dan. You know, we uh, we have uh, generally about a 45 minute conversation, and we're hitting that point but I do end all of these with uh, one thing from any of the seven things or even anything new that you'd say as a physician, medical director, what's your last words, your parting shot to the people listening today? What would you want them to hear uh, in their uh, earbuds uh, last before we end this session?
1: Uh, Pretty simple.
0: You guys are awesome. Take pride in what you
1: do. We are a profession, medical profession, because of you guys and the fact that you're putting in the sacrifice and the effort to take care of people day in and day out. Take care of yourselves and just simply thank you for continuing to do what you do.
0: Uh, I think uh, we couldn't uh, end that better. Uh, will, from your experience in EMS, taking that through to uh, emergency medicine, we're very fortunate to have you here, as they are uh, for you there in Louisville. And um, you'll have uh, um, some great experiences there, and people will be very lucky to have you. You're a good man. You're a good friend, uh, a great doc, and I thank you for coming by. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for listening to another Limer Education Continuing Education podcast. For more podcasts that are relevant to your practice of EMS, limmereducationcom slash 7things.